Welcome to the Modern Futures Podcast. Humanity is evolving at a pace never seen before. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he discusses how new ideas and developments impact us today, how they will make tomorrow more productive, and how they can make life a little more challenging. I want to start talking about how this hyperconnected life is something that that we can uh, get a, get control of, and as communicators, we can start thinking of it in certain terms, and we can start getting some insights from what's come before, and some of the great thinkers, all the way from the beginning of the internet. Um, Professor Stephen Hawking talks talks about how we're with nodes connected by the internet, we're communication hubs. Well, I think we can be more than that, and I think that we can be more than that as communicators. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. And really, where do we start? I think we need to start with something that's very human. What's love? Love is a bunch of neurochemicals operating. Serotonin, oxytocin, vasopressin. It makes us connect with each other. It gives us the butterflies in our stomachs. It makes us attracted to people. It warns us of problems that are happening pushes us away from dangerous situations. But really, in reality, love is way deeper than just these neurochemicals. It's about who we are. And I like to think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We all know the hierarchy of needs. At the bottom, safety. Food sets warmth. Well, when you woke up this morning, what was the first thing you did? Did you jump out of bed and go and grab some food? Did you hug your partner? Did you do a little bit more than that? Or did you reach over and grab your phone and check, check all of your alerts and all of your messages? Yeah? I'm not going to make you put your hands up. <laughs> I do it. I, I'm talking about hyperconnectivity. I'm the most hyperconnected guy that you can meet, right? But there's something. We've flipped Maslow's hierarchy of needs on its head. And the first thing that we try and do as humans today, because of the technology and the applications and the systems that have been put onto our devices, is reach for some self-actualization. Did someone like my picture, like my update? Did they like my Snapchat? It's pretty empty. Just like your stomach is when you don't eat enough before you do this, okay? And it's really having an adverse effect. People are starting to go deeper and deeper and deeper into these hyper-connected lives and into these applications. And you're even seeing many, many countries have declining birth rates because people aren't getting together as couples and they're not going ahead and creating families and having children. It's happening in Japan right now. And there's even guys in Japan called otaku that are having girlfriends in their phones or having affairs with virtual girlfriends. And it's because of this hyper-connected life and it's been created by other people. I read a book back in 1994 that was very seminal and very important and you should go and find this on the internet. There's probably someone that's uploaded a PDF there. There's a, there's a professor in New York City called Douglas Rushkoff. And uh, Douglas Rushkoff talks about communication. In the early days, he talked about the internet and psychedelics and virtual reality and this new culture that was being born. And really, this is what he said. 
Our growing dependence on computers and electronic media has made us easy, easy targets, if unwilling subjects of one of the most bizarre social experiments of the 20th century. We're all part of a massive experiment by companies that build software, that put it in our hands, that let us do a number of things, and there's value in that, sure, but the value goes back to them. And this is really important, because we're being experimented on, and really as communications professionals, we're the experimenters as well. So we've got a responsibility in what we do every day to think about how we do these social experiments. They can be ethical. There's a lot of people that don't necessarily follow the, those ethics all the way. So that's talking about love and who we are today and where we're going. Maybe some of this rings true. Maybe there's someone in the room who's like, I'm nothing like that. Then maybe you're slightly detached from reality or the new reality. Or as I like to call it, the new love. Trademark. Because the new love is actually leading us into very dangerous territory. Marshall McLuhan, a very famous uh, Canadian uh, professor from the University of Toronto, talked a, a lot about communications theory in the early 1960s. Go and check out his work if you don't already know it. And he said very famously, we shape our tools and therefore they shape us. Now what's actually happening is that the software developers and the co-founders of software companies and the growth hackers are shaping us now. It's not just the tools, it's the people driving the tools. And the, the emergence of these, what I call techno-shamans, the shamanic guides through our cultural society are almost a religious basis of thinking about technology and communication and content, is guiding us now more than ever. And Rushkoff also says something else here. The battle for reality begins on the fields of digital interaction. Our growing dependence on computers and electronic media has made us that easy target. That, th those social experiments has led us to a point where someone stepped forward in 1994. There was a very, very smart man in New York City called Josh Harris. He was slightly crazy, right? But if you've ever met a lot of uh, tech, tech co-founders, they're generally a little nuts, but that's okay, because they see the world differently. Josh Harris decided to start a company called Sudo in 1994. This company, Sudo, was like YouTube, but in 1994. Think about how, how far away that was. And it was quite successful. The early days of the internet made it tough. But then he wanted to take it one step further. And this was documented in a film by Omni Timoner called uh, We Live in Public. And go and check that film out as well. We Live in Public um, profiles how Josh Harris built Sudo, but then stepped forward. And he built a bunker in New York City and put a hundred young people in there, fully connected with unlimited drinks. It had a gun range, food, open showers where you could, people could see you shower. People had sex. Uh, people were interrogated and given counseling in Stasi-type mentality. And he recorded everything. And it's like an early experiment of real-life hyperconnectivity in a bunker in New York City. It lasted for about a month and a half before the police shut it down. As you can imagine, having this sort of debauchery, psychological terror for many people, and a, and a live gun range under the streets in New York City, it didn't go down particularly well. But what, what I think it underpinned it was 
you know, Josh went on and then he put cameras in, in, his, uh, in his apartment with his girlfriend for the next year or so. He absolutely lived in public and everyone can see every step of his life until he went bankrupt. And they saw the breakdown of his, him as a human. And it was that early stage um, reality internet TV show. And really he, he talked about something that was a precursor of what the world would be today. Do we live in public? Do you live in public? Maybe you've got multiple personas that live all over the internet. Rushkoff calls it digifrenia. Right? There's someone on Facebook right now talking to you, but you're not there. But maybe there's other people also talking to you, and maybe conversing with an effigy of who you are. You're just not in the conversation, but you're advertised there. It's a very real world. And if we look at some of the stats today, about 3.4 billion people use the internet. There's over a billion websites in the world. If anyone from a communications perspective ever says to me in a meeting again, we need a website, they're wrong. Don't sell websites. You've got too many websites. That's going to hurt as well, I'm sorry. It's the truth. Um, 1.8 billion Google searches a day. 87 billion emails are sent every day. And 99 million Skype calls. We live in public, the companies that build this infrastructure are storing the majority of our data and they're using that to make billions of dollars. Hands up who's ever made money off of their personal Facebook profile. No. Because Mark Zuckerberg has. Right? And a lot of people walk around and like, social media is dead. It's changed. It's not the same anymore. Well, it's not dead. 1.78 billion people are on Facebook, and they still use it more than anything, anything else. Um, I come from Canada. We're one of the most connected countries in the world. Um, high, higher rates of like number of friends, higher amount of usage on a per weekly basis, and uh, they bought Instagram. That's another 32 million uh, uploads per day. You know, we, we're going towards a, a visual internet. 50 million Tumblr, Tumblr posts, 10 billion snaps on Snapchat a day, and growing. These numbers are about six months out of date. So this is growing already. We're going, moving towards a visual internet. Facebook couldn't buy Snapchat. Snapchat did the right thing by not selling to them for about $4 billion. I think they're valued at about $15 billion today. Um, and then visual content, 5.8 billion YouTube videos. It's just getting bigger and bigger. And it's an astounding amount of interaction and content pr provision to companies that don't care about who we are. They care when we've put a credit card in the system and we're paying for advertising, right? And what's really interesting is, all of this has been expounded by the cell phones that we've got in our pockets. So more people in the world today, and this is a United Nations figure, more people in the world today have got access to cell, cell phones and smartphones then have got access to clean running water. It's about six billion people. A third of those people have actually got smartphones, so about two billion people have got smartphones. These smartphones allow us to connect to each other, go deeper in conversation, take video, self-actualize when we wake up in the morning instead of having a bite to eat and giving our partner a hug. And by 2020, there's gonna be two to three times more the amount of smartphones um, to PCs in the world. So by 2020, people aren't even gonna bother buying laptops. They're going to have tablets, they're going to have smartphones. They're not going to bother with anything else. This is also going to revolutionize countries like Africa, you know, rural areas of China and such like, where you know, for, for less than $100 you can actually build 
phones and tablets are available to all. And this mobile access and immediate content platforms create viral loops and double viral loops. Hey, have you seen this? I'm going to email this to 15 of my friends. I'm going to tag 15 of my friends on Facebook. The double viral loops are eating us up. But where's this leading us? Well, there's some stories, and some very worrying stories. Whenever I go to a restaurant and, you know, kids are tough to deal with. Just put an iPhone in front of them, put a cell phone in front of them. I want you to tell the story to the next person that you see doing that, or if you do this with your children, I want you to think about this. The youngest known patient, addicted to iPads and iPhones, got treated in the UK last year. She was four years old. Um, her parents enrolled her in for a compulsive behaviour therapy session, and set of sessions. She fought and screamed and cried when she couldn't have the screen. When she couldn't have that screen, she couldn't have that content, it affected her deeply as a human. Because these companies have created mechanisms that make us want more. And it's neuro neurochemical, right? We want more. I was addicted to TV when I was a kid. But you know, I was also out on my skateboard and there's no TVs around, right? This is why I want you all to like turn off your screens now. Can you feel that urge to want to check your phone, <laughs> right? And it's quite worrying. When you see some of the people that have built the internet, Mark Andreessen, very famous guy, uh, VC, he started Netscape, he developed NetMosaic, became Netscape, sold that for a lot of money, became an angel investor, um, got together with Ben Horowitz and Bill Andreessen Horowitz, a very famous uh, venture capitalist company, investing in a lot of these companies, building hyperconnected systems. He talks about the internet has always been and always will be a magic box. These people don't want us to understand how these systems work. I'm going to tell you how these systems work. They make you want communication because they remind you that they want communication. There's just an alarm that just went off in here, right? It wants your attention. Don't look at it. How do you feel about that? I want to know what it said now. And that brings me on to the next thing, hunger. We're hungry for information, we're hungry for connection. Every single day, we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data. More data in the last two years has been created than the previous 20 years. And by 2020, there's going to be something like 44, I can look up this word, zettabytes. These are big. Quintillion bytes, that's 10 to the power of 18. Zettabytes, I think it's like 10 to the power of 25. You should correct me if I'm wrong. If you can deal in, in zettabytes, I'll be very impressed as well. But there's three things that I want to, to talk about at this particular point. We don't only create data ourselves. There's data from machines that talk to each other. It builds momentum. And those machines are acting on what we do around them. We're being followed and optimized and augmented. We have become traceable cookies on the internet as we walk down the street. GPS, capturing where you're going, putting that against your recommendations, eye beacons, all this cool stuff creates this ecosystem of what they're calling big data. And man, it's getting bigger and bigger every day. We live in that algorithmic world. 
And what's interesting is we're now entering what some people are calling the, the fourth industrial revolution. And the fourth industrial revolution is around the Internet of Things, and we've probably heard a lot about the Internet of Things. Cisco think that by 2025 we'll have like 50 billion connected devices around the world. It'll be that screen and these lights and every, every single device that you've got in your bags and in your pockets and on the desk right now. It might be your spectacles. It might be the chairs that you're sat in. Everything's going to be connected. Why? You need to, think, need to know, you know how they're being used, when they're broken, a whole bunch of different things, where, where things are located. We really need to know this stuff. Or do we? Maybe the solutions are being pushed down, to us, down onto us as humans. Maybe we do want them. Um, and it's, it's dangerous. There's a couple of stories I want to talk about. About three years ago, I was called up by a Canadian broadcasting company, and they said, Nick, we want you to come on TV, and I want you to talk about this Russian hacker that took um, 47,000 unsecured web cameras and put them on, on a website called Instacam. These were cameras that weren't protected by passwords, or they used industry standard passwords that they were shipped with. They, had, they were in people's bedrooms and in their gardens, in their offices. Very dangerous, right? But what's really dangerous is that within the last two to three weeks, it's taken the next step. A developer uploaded a piece of code called Mirai. And Mirai was deployed last week on the east coast of the US and shut down over a dozen critical services in social media. Do you hear about this? And what it did, it ran a denial of service attack. Typically denial of service attacks goes to machines, goes to computers, and they all pump traffic to one website. You can't handle the traffic, the server breaks down. What happened with Mirai is it's a botnet that's open source, it's been uploaded, and it's now in the hands of, of tens of thousands of developers around the world. That turns every single Internet of Things device onto websites to shut them down. It's like our homes and our streets are attacking us. It's dangerous, right? And as we walk into the Internet of Things and we've got homes where we've got fridges that are connected and tell, tell us when we've run out of milk. Or we've got lights that automatically switch on and off and soft music and doors that lock. Maybe it's going to tra trace us as we go around on a Friday night and drink some beer and eat some pizza, get home. The fridge will lock itself, tell us that we can't eat. The sofa won't let us sit down. The door to my bedroom will lock. The door to the gym downstairs will open and there'll be a booming voice, very much like the voice that introduces us today, that says, Nick, Go and work out for 30 minutes because you're not going to bed because you, you told me that you want to lose weight. <laughs> Damn! So what do you do? Do you, do you fall asleep like on the floor, cold, shivering, or do you go and work out? That's a bit of a dystopian future. It's unlikely that we're going to give our homes that amount of uh, options on our lives. Is it? Maybe? But there are people that are using a lot of these systems to, to control us. And there's something that I like to bring in here, which is like the more time that we spend with these interconnected devices and these systems that surround us, we have fewer and fewer really good friendships. The true friendships. How many friends do you have on Facebook? I've got about 700. How many people out of those 700 do I talk to in a week? Actually talk to. Maybe four, right? And those four and the depth of those friendships are slightly devalued by the amount of 
loose acquaintances and loose nodes that I've got in my network. Okay, now we're going to get really, really fun. Let's move on to growth. Yesterday we had someone talk about drums. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about a number of other things. We're starting to live in a techno-cultural psychedelic revolution. Sounds like a mouthful, right? What does that mean? That means that perceptions will be changed by more technologies coming into play. That means that things like augmented reality and virtual reality are going to impact our lives even more. Imagine those screens that we've got on our tables. I see you on your screen. <laughs> Imagine us with our screens, but those screens disappear, and then all we wear is sunglasses, a pair of sunglasses or a pair of normal glasses. And maybe we've got some lenses that we add to our our eyes, and we can see augmented reality, and all of our information like floats in front of us, and we're just doing the thousand-yard stare, checking our emails every day. Actually, there's been some uh, some people as thought leaders that have thought that screens will po possibly disappear by 2025 for many people. You've got technologies like Magic Leap and Hololens revolutionising the world. You've got Companies like Oculus Rift being bought by Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg knows that it is becoming an ultimately a very much more visual world. People spend about 88 minutes in Facebook every week in some of the most connected companies, uh, countries around the world. If you're actually in that virtual reality and you can sit with everyone at a conference or sit around a dinner table because you miss your parents because they're 4,000 miles away like me, you're going to spend hours in this virtual reality. <laughs> I'd like to draw on, uh, on a cultural orator, someone that, that supports the use of psychedelics, called Terence McKenna. Most people think that it's far out if we get VR up and running. This guy's a hippie, okay? This is more profound than that. This is the real thing. It's a philosophical journey, and the vehicles are not simply cultural, but biological itself. We're, we're closing distance with the most profound event that a planetary ecology can encounter which is the freeing of life from all chrysalis of matter. The idea that we can transcend ourselves up into another physical space with someone else and be someone and be recognised and operate. Maybe it's a world that we want to disappear into. This takes us from hyper-connectivity into what I actually call hyper-immersion, where we will be absolutely surrounded by information. There's an amazing video by a Japanese-American guy called Keichi Matsuda. You may have seen it, it's called Hyperreality. Go and look this up, it's on Vimeo. It's had about 2.5 million views. And it's, it's this reality where there's just a blitz of information in front of him. In front of this woman, actually, in Colombia. And if you follow the story through, the trials and tribulations of a bus ride, a street walk, a supermarket visit, and an encounter on the street that ultimately ends in a very, very compromised situation. Teaches us something that's really going to be normal life. And then along with VR and AR and all these things, we've got this emergence of artificial intelligence as being something that's very real, that will live in our devices, in our pockets, and will ultimately liberate us from maybe some of the systems that we've got reliance on, because we'll have something that does it all for us. Imagine you won't have to look at your, your phone. It knows when to move money in your bank account. It knows when to send a message to your mom um, for her birthday and to order flowers. Imagine that it already knows it can anticipate. That could be quite useful, actually. Maybe that liberation's going to come. And some people think that the singularity is coming. 
Dr. Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity in his book, Singularity, isn't it? Artificial intelligence will reach human levels by 2029. We're around about rat levels right now. We had AlphaGo be the, the ninth down Go champion using instinct and learning. Amazing. Follow that out to further say 2045, we'll have multiplied the intelligence, the human biology, biological machine, intelligence of our civilization a billion fold. Exponential growth. Our machines will be processors. I've got a chip in my hand. My friend from Kapersky does too. I think that we're going to have nanorobotics delivering medicine and looking after us. This is next level. Maybe that's science fiction. For now, sure. Okay. The big red slide. Confusion. Well, we've all heard of the phrase, fear of missing out, right? Maybe you can feel it right now. Because you, you're not looking at your screens or your social networks. I'm going to dare you all not to look at your phones for the rest of the day. Do you think you can do it? Can you ask yourself that question? You can, but you've been persuaded by the people that build the technology that you shouldn't. And you know, we're actually living in a world where our kids are uh, in, uh, addicted to the internet. There's amazing documentaries about kids going to these camps to get out of that internet addiction. We've got parents highly addicted to WeChat games. I was chatting to someone yesterday about WeChat and how deep it is. It's not really a big thing in North America, but out in Asia, it does everything for you. And as you build this artificial intelligence systems into their augmented reality, it's going to get more and more powerful, and we're, we're only going to live within that, and we're not necessarily going to live with our, within our own lives. Going to look at South Korea now. It was recently found that kids around about the age of 19, if they spent several years looking at screens, whether it's iPads or, or computer gaming and a multitude of different things like cell phones, they're actually growing to a point where the right-hand side of their brain was not developing properly and they were getting a form of, di uh, of dementia. And they called it digital dementia. Can you imagine being 19 and having dementia? Forgetting everything being clumsy. This is something that you get, and it might be terrible later in your life, and you're getting it at the age of 19, voluntarily, because of the usage of screens. And in South Korea, they've actually built dozens and dozens of, of centers to rehabilitate the kids, to help develop the right hand side of their brain. And how are we teaching our kids that this is not the right thing to do? We're not. We're buying them these screens for Christmas. We're, we're letting the people sell more to more people. And we're, we're persuading ourselves that it's okay. And maybe it isn't okay. And maybe we should think about driving a digital detox program. Don't look at your phones for the rest of the day. Can you do it? We're communications professionals. What if there's a problem? I get it. I understand it's your job. Try and do it this weekend, though, when you don't have to be on. Unless it's your shift. I understand that as well. <laughs> so that hyperconnectivity and hyper-immersion, artificial intelligence, and VR and AR, has led us to this hyper-normal life. Uh, a documentary filmmaker from the UK called Adam Curtis just released a, a documentary called Hypernormalization. Very interesting, but I think that there's one thing that I pulled from that, which is that we're so much part of a system that we cannot see ourselves in a world beyond it. Ultimately, then, we are conforming to the way that 
the system wants us to be. Whether that's a political system, a television uh, series system, a social network system, communication system. The internet is no longer this magical free place. The future is here, and we are it, and we are on our own. John Perry Barlow is, is one of the founders of the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation. And uh, you should check them out and what they do. But this is when we're in the final, final straight of this conversation and this, and this, this talk. I so said, what can I call this? How can I summarize this? I think we've forgotten what heart is. I think we've forgotten who we are as humans. I think we've forgotten what it means to come back to waking up every day, taking a deep breath, understanding that we're grounded on the earth. When's the last time you took your shoes off and walked on the grass? It's actually very, very good from a world's perspective, they've actually found out. We can still define who we are and what we want out of life. We can still make connect choices about how we connect and how we act. I want you to ask yourself a very serious question right now. Ask yourself how much you thought about the emails, the social posts you want to make, the texts, the screenshots that you want to make during this talk. And then ask yourself, was it worth it, worrying about these things? You have to realize that nothing really matters. It doesn't really matter. Ooh, someone said something bad about my brand in the last 20 to 30 minutes. Ooh. You know. We've been, we've been convinced that it is really important. But it's fine, we'll work it out. Because we've just spent quite a few minutes being more human, right? I feel that you guys have listened to me. It's amazing. <laughs> I want you to leave here after two o'clock today, and I want you to think about this. I want you to turn off your devices. I want you to go for a walk, jump on your bike, smile at people, hug some people, say hi to your kids, if you are going to pick up a device, make a phone call. Phone calls aren't even the first thing that we do with these devices. And I think what's the most profound thing about this conversation about hyper-connectivity is one of the founders of this modern techno-cultural psychedelic world is no longer with us, unfortunately. But I think he said it very, very well about who we should be. And this man's made hundreds of billions of dollars from giving us the devices to connect but he also knows that this isn't the end and that it's just an enabler of something and that we can't lose who we are as humans your time is limited so don't waste it living someone else's life don't be trapped by dogma which is living with the results of others thinking don't let the noise of others opinions drown out your own inner voice and most important have the courage to follow your heart and intuition This is the guy that built the infrastructure for many of us in the world. It's the guy that realized that back in the day it was more important to understand that calligraphy built an emotional mechanism into word processing more than just having more functionality. This is a guy that took a, a bunch of LSD and said it was the most important thing in his design process, right? He thought differently about the world, right? Think different. We can all think differently. And that's what I'd like to leave us all with today. I'd like, to, I'd like us all to start thinking differently about hyperconnectivity. We know that we want to reach out to people. We, want, we know that people have to hear what we're going to say. Let's make it count. 
Let's think about it emotionally. Let, let, let's play to some of the human emotions of love. But let, let's not be irresponsible about what we want people to do. Because you know what? Hey, we have 14,000 retweets. About what? Realize that those retweets are just instant mechanisms of people just doing what the software companies want them to do, and they probably haven't understood your message. Pick up the phones. Go and see people in person. Have events like this. I think these are some of the most important times. And I travel the world meeting many people, and the conversations I have are 100 times more important than the tweets that I get, because I don't care about tweets. It's kind of disappointing when I check Twitter after this. It's like, there's no tweets about but that's because I've asked people not to do it. I do have these slides. It's got all of my dialogue. I'd like to thank you very much for paying attention today. I really value your attention, and this means a lot to me. I'm available for Q&A right now, and I'm here all day until about 2 o'clock. Thank you very much. Thank you.